It may be the biggest battle going on in your head. You feel anxious. You're overwhelmed. You're bored out of your mind. Hurry up. Let's get this over with any time the conversation about money comes up. But then on the flip side of it, you know it's something you need to get a better handle on. You have this fear that someday you're going to run out of money. And you're a good mom. You want to take care of the kids. You want to spoil the grandkids. But for some reason, everything else takes precedent. Whenever you're like, yes, today is the day and you start learning about money, you find something else to do instead. Okay, this time, stick with us. We're going to learn this together because it is so important that we do understand our finances. So today, Monique Holm, founder of Real Estate Investor Goddesses, is here. There's a bunch of ways to invest in real estate beyond the traditional idea you may have in your head. We're going to take a seat at the kids' table. What are you teaching your kids? Do you pick a job because it makes you happy? happy or because it makes you money. We'll see how the kids answer that and our expert has advice for parents. But first, we get to get to know dumb questions. All right, CFP at the Harmony Financial Wellness Group at RBC Wealth Management, Erica Cummings is here with us. Hi, Erica. Good morning. Okay, so let's talk about um, switching jobs. When you're at the point where you are switching jobs, whether it was you were laid off or because you found something better, what do we do with our company retirement plan when you leave that job? Well, you have mainly four options. The first choice is you could leave the balance in your old company plan. You can, as long as the amount that's in your 401k or whatever plan you have is over $5,000, your old employer must allow you the opportunity to leave that money in your previous plan. Okay. So they can't force you to move it to another location. If the plan has uh, offers low cost investing, if you you know ultimately want to do other things down the road, but you're not really sure right now, you know the plan maybe that may be the best thing to do because let's face it, when we're switching jobs or we're doing things, sometimes there's other things that are taking priority. So as long as your balance is over five thousand dollars, you can keep it in your your plan. Now, what isn't that? A little tricky though, because when you, okay, you leave the company and sometimes companies switch who they use yes. to administer their 401k plan. So don't you kind of just like what happens to your plan when your company chooses to use somebody else? It switches over, ah. but the risk that I've seen in, in my career is that people forget about these plans, especially in this day and age where this is not the old times where people stayed at Kodak for 35 years and people stayed at Xerox. Younger generations are definitely changing careers. They're changing different companies. And so it's really easy, especially when you're starting out to, to completely forget about these. And I'm, I'm not kidding when I say that. I have clients that suddenly will say to me, oh, I totally forgot. I have $6,000 sitting in an old plan. Yeah, which means it hasn't been looked at. You haven't made any adjustments to it. But it's, as long as the company remains intact, it will. your funds will just be transferred to whatever new 401k provider they choose. That's the other downside is if they choose a lesser quality company to go with or maybe there's higher fees. There's a lot to keep track of when you leave it behind. And then even if that company, what if that company does uh, get bought out or they change yeah. in some way, now you got to, how do you reach yeah. back out to them in 20 years and be like, Hey, remember me? <laughs> I it's was not, it's not easy. It's yeah. not easy. There is a database out there that you can 
uh, look for previous retirement plans. So that's a good thing. So you don't have to wait for it to go to unclaimed funds or something like that. So there is a database where it holds previous 401k plans, oh. but it's not easy. I've been through this before with clients, especially when there's been mergers and acquisitions. So smaller companies that have been bought out and they were bought out 25 years ago and that company was bought out and, and you can go on and on and on. And it is really hard. So of the four options, this is one where if you're going to do it, you really, really, really want to make sure that you're keeping on top of things. Any piece of mail, you get emails, any information, just make sure you're reading it so that you know what's happening and, and try not to kind of put that on the back burner. Okay. So the other option is you can roll that balance over into your new company's plan if that plan allows it. So not every plan does, but most do. Uh, this could be a good option, but you'll want to make sure that the new company has the best investment options. So do they offer you know solid, low-cost investment options? It's a way for you to consolidate your different assets, because at this point you'll be contributing to the new 401k. So this is a way for you to put everything in the same place. And there might be some advantages to having, you know, a higher, a higher amount of money in one particular plan. The other option, which a lot of people do is to roll your balance into an IRA. And this can be a good option for several reasons. Generally an IRA will offer you pretty much the greatest array of investment options than your retirement plan. So most retirement plans may have 10, 15 different funds to choose from. When you roll it into an IRA, no matter where it is, whether you self-directed or you have a financial advisor, you pretty much can invest in anything that is allowed within IRS regulations. This will also allow you to invest it with other dollars that you have out there. So if you've worked at several different companies, you can roll all of those into the same IRA. So you have them all in the same place. If you do plan on doing this, I can't stress this enough. You want to make sure you do what's called a trustee to trustee rollover. So anybody that separates service typically gets some type of paperwork that asks you what you want to do with your plan. And in that case, you usually can check the options that I'm talking about. They'll say, do you want to keep it? They'll say, do you want to roll it into another 401k? They'll say, do you want to roll it into an IRA or do you want to take a distribution? When you roll it over into an IRA, typically nowadays, it's actually just done in the computer world. So you may not even physically get a check, but either way you want it made out and, and ready to go into the, the IRA that you plan on rolling it into. So you don't, you don't want to do unless you absolutely have to, what the fourth option is, which is withdraw the funds. So you are allowed, obviously it's your money, you can say, I just want to take the 401k out. This is generally a bad idea in almost every situation. So retirement accounts are always subject to ordinary income tax, regardless. So you have to pay taxes and companies are required to take 20% right out of the gate. Ooh. So let's say you're not in a 20% tax bracket. They still are required to take 20% when you take that distribution. And then you can recoup it when you file your taxes. Let's just take that one off the table. That one is too stressful. Yeah. That and is remember, good. if you're not, if you're not 59 and a half, you're not supposed to take it out. So you have an early withdrawal penalty on top of it. So that's an additional 10%. Okay. Let's not recommend so, that. Yeah, yeah. We really don't want that as your option, but that is, we have to talk about what are all your options. That is definitely one of the options. But again, I want you to be really careful because when you're rolling it out, we're not, 
we're not withdrawing the funds and then depositing them. You are doing, you want to do what's called a trustee to trustee. So you really want to do your best to not have a check in your possession. And if it is, at least it's a check that's made with the intention of going into an IRA. Okay. All right, Erica, how can we find you and follow you? And your podcast, it, did the first episode launch yet? Because January, you said, right? I know. Well, we've been running into a little bit of trouble, but we're going to probably come out in the next couple of weeks. So I'll okay. let you know for sure. By February um, at the latest, it's more uh, just running into some, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. We'll keep, we'll keep an eye out for it. So, yeah. uh, but it is called a strong, a strong woman for strong women. So keep an eye out for that. And you can find us at harmonyfinancialwellness.com. You can email me at erica.cummings at RBC. And also I'm on LinkedIn and on Facebook. So there's lots of ways to find us. All right. Perfect. Thanks, Erica. You're welcome. How you can invest in real estate, even if you have limited time and money. Monique Holm joins us next. Monique Holm, founder of Real Estate Investor Goddesses. How are you? I'm great, Sandy. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, thank you for taking time out of your day for us. My pleasure. Educator and advocate for women to create real wealth through real estate. Mission is to help 1 million women create financial freedom through real estate investing. 15 years experience, over 1,300 properties, number one best-selling author of the Real Estate Investor Goddess Handbook, and Wealth for Women, Conversations with the Team that Creates the Dream, host of the Real Estate Investor Goddesses podcast, Huffington Post contributing author, keynote speaker. Monique, we want in. We want to be just like you. <laughs> We're so impressed. But I don't know what it is. And I don't know if I'm the only one to say this, but I am so set in my old traditional way of invest, hold until you're old kind of mindset. Go to work invest, max out your 401k, and then that's it. And then we're stuck because we're scared of the risk. <laughs> is there a certain type of person that real estate investing is for? Or do you think all of us could be doing this? I believe all of you could be doing it, but not all in the same way. Okay. Real estate investing is not one size fits all. There are a lot of different ways of investing in real estate. And some are very, very passive and don't require you to be a landlord, you to deal with the, what I call the three Ps, the tenants, toilets, termites. So, you know, for people who are like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to have a side hustle. I don't want to have Yes, hustle, okay, yeah. Right? Yep. So there are ways to do it that way. And then there are people that like, oh my gosh, I love the, you know, they're HGTV addicts like I was. Um, you know, they love the idea of getting an ugly duckling property, making it beautiful, putting in tenants or flipping it. Um, and there's some, and you can invest that way, but there are a lot of different ways of investing in real estate um, from a lot of different price points. And I think anyone can do it. The important thing is to get your money working for you. And so that, that I think is the best way that you get to seven figures. That's the best way you get to financial freedom. Well, see, now you even said, what's the right price point. That's the scary part that there's money involved and there is a level of risk or no. There's always risk in any investment, right? 
even putting your money in a in the bank right now, I think that's a risk because no, that's it's true. growing less than the cost of inflation. That's you're true. Like, you're literally paying the bank to hold your money right now. So, you know, when you're you just stick it in the bank, you're losing money when you when you factor in inflation. So there's always risk, right? Um, there's risk in the stock market, there's risk anywhere. Uh, but the more streams of income you have, the more places that money is coming in from, the more security you have. So I like to think of it as, you know, legs of a table, right? When you only have one leg in your table, which is what like most people have because they have one job and they trade their time for money and that's their only source of income. Mm-hmm. When they lose that leg right because say i don't know might be a global pandemic and yeah. the economy shuts down like, <laughs> hypothetically you know, maybe hypothetically yeah. could have you know, <laughs> not likely to happen but might happen yeah right then you're you're done right that's why most people in this country are one paycheck one pink slip one illness yeah. one de- death one divorce away from bankruptcy or, you know, sometimes homelessness. But right? that's how a lot of us grew up, right? We that's were... what we're taught. Yeah. Yeah. But what when you really have wealth, then you have multiple legs. You have many legs. The more legs you have to that table, the more streams of income, the more places it's coming from. You lose one or two legs, you have all of these other legs, right? Your mm-hmm. table is going to be very, very stable. And when you have money that is not tied to your time, which is what real estate can give you because it gives you passive income. When you have money, these streams of income coming in that is not tied to your time. And that's for me, that's what I consider financial freedom. Financial freedom, I define is when you have enough passive income streams that it equals or exceeds your expenses. And that's my goal. My mission is to help 1 million women create financial freedom through real estate investing. So you have all of these passive streams of income, they're coming in, they're covering the bills, they're covering everything. At that point, I think that is when you are wealthy. And for some people that'll be at seven figures or or more um, or less. But that is then when you you can then own your time, and you start doing the things that you want to do, you're not working because you have to do. And that is freedom. That is so true. When you stop working scared is what I say when you don't go into work, because a lot of people go into work, they're scared of losing their job. So they almost allow their bosses to take advantage of them and take advantage of their time. Right? Because you just you want to be the yes person because you don't want to lose your job. So it's your only leg. Yeah, it's your only leg. Right? I was a very I started my career as a lawyer. I was absolutely miserable. Um, just to give you an, an idea, at one point I found myself, it was a Tuesday morning, I found myself in the ER. And when the doctor told me that my appendix had ruptured and I'd be in the hospital for several days, I ended up being in the hospital for nine days. And then he said afterwards, I'd have at least 30 days at home to recover. My first thought when he told me that was, oh, thank God I don't have to go to work for at least 30 days. <laughs> oh, <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> that was my next thought. Like, oh, that's bad, right? Like, I didn't realize how miserable I was until that moment wow. when I felt this like yeah. enormous relief at not having to go into the office. And I was like, oh, shoot, because I, you know, at at that point, I had done everything I'd been told. I'd done everything right, quote unquote, right? I'd gone to school, you know, I was a good student. I got to college, Ivy League law school. I was in partnership track in this law, big, big law firm making six figures. I should have been deliriously happy, but I was that miserable. Wow. And, you know, and I remember sitting in the hospital bed going, okay, this isn't so bad. Do I need, I can get rid of my tonsils. <laughs> like, you know, like, what else can a spleen? Do I need a spleen? What does that even do? Right? Like, I was just like, oh, no. what am I? <laughs> See, no, here I thought, well, how much work did you do though when you were on, you know, a, a, recovering? Because I feel like a lot of people, and now especially when the lines are blurred, when we're a lot of us are still working from home, I have heard mm -hmm. so many people say during their holidays, they ultimately had to work because they're, they're, I don't know, their boss it doesn't consider vacation days, vacation days anymore, because we're always home. Yeah. So did you do work while you were on those vacation days? And that sealed the deal for you that you had to pull the shoe and find something else? Oh, you mean when I was yeah. recovering from? Yeah, that was not a vacation. I well, okay, I, 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 mis I misspoke there. <laughs> well, yeah, for a second there, you were making it sound like a vacation. It, it, it felt like a vacation from hell, but that was like literally. I had a life-threatening excruciating illness. I was not able to work, um, and it was. I mean, to you know, give me a con, that was a, that was a while ago. I was actually pre. Um, that was even like pre the time where I had a Blackberry, so they couldn't reach oh. me. Like, you, that wasn't reachable oh. 24 seven. Wait a minute. Let's just, like, let's just revel in that moment. Remember those good old days. <laughs> Remember those times when, when you left work, you were actually, you, you were gone. Work. Yeah. <laughs> you were gone and not reachable. Yeah. Um, oh. yeah, that was, that was then. So that, not that that could happen now, probably now. Yeah. They would find ways to reach me. But I, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because I just took a couple weeks off. I, I really, I've been making a bigger um, effort at actually having vacations. And one of the things that I did this past year is really focus on building out my team and creating a business that runs without me. Oh. And, uh, and so that I don't have to be there all the time. And I, I went. I spent two and a half weeks in Mexico in November, oh. and then I took two weeks off around the holidays. Oh. And I have my team that's doing their stuff. And so there's certain things that I need to show up for in the business, but more and more, I'm, I'm owning back my time. And that's the other thing. So again, it's like I'm creating these passive income streams. It's, it's, not, it's not me trading my time for money. And that, I think, is wealth. All right. So for those of us who feel overwhelmed by it and we just, I don't, I don't know. Like, I think the money is, is what scares me. I don't know what other people are thinking, but for me, it's the money. How much money do I have, have to invest initially? Mm -hmm. Well, I, this is a, the biggest thing that women are worried about, which is why I wrote this book um, that I 
in last year called Investing in Real Estate from $1 to $1 million. Mm. Investing strategies for every budget and every goddess. And it's available as a free download on my website, reigoddesses.com. And I did that because because of this. There's so many people that have this thought, like if it, if I'm gonna be if I'm gonna spend if I'm gonna invest in real estate, it's gonna cost me, I don't know, tens of thousands, That's what hundreds I think. of thousands, of millions of right? Like it's yeah. just there's there's it's so much and however much money they they have, they think it's not enough. And and I I get it because of the way that we're we're taught we have to do real estate. But there are a lot of different strategies for investing in real estate, and some actually require none of your own money. So in that in that book, I share twelve strategies, several of which are little to no money down, and then some of which are. So there are three main challenges or blocks that our women perceive to invest in real estate. One is that money want piece. Like mm-hmm. I'm gonna, it's gonna cost me so much money. So I share some strategies where it doesn't have to take your own money. And I'll give you an example, which is the one, one of the easiest. One of the easiest ways to start um, is you have extra space in your place. You can rent out a room, uh, short-term rental, Airbnb. You, or if you have an extra unit, you can, um, some people will rent out their place for film shoots or photo shoots if it's oh. you know, a particularly beautiful place. Um, yeah, or I don't think as I can. An, as, I an can't event, do that. as an event space. Oh. Um, so there you can just use the, the space you already have and start making money on that. Um, that's one strategy. Another strategy is um, that I shared is that there's something called wholesaling. You get a property under contract. Uh, this one's a more, you know, these are more, more on the active side. Generally, when it's little, when it's zero money, you're going to put in time. Okay. Um, uh, but the, there's it's, it's wholesaling. So you get a property under contract and you find, uh, you know, for one price, let's say you get a property under contract for 100000 and then you find an investor that's willing to buy that property for 110,000. So when you close, you know, the this, the new buyer pays 110,000, the seller gets their 100,000, you get a $10,000 wholesale fee. Um that's a that's a way of investing. That's a that can get you cash that then you can put into more passive streams of income. Wouldn't that investor um, though go and look for their own properties? Like why do they really need you? Why? Because it takes time to find properties. Oh, so a oh lot okay. Of, a I lot see. of investors love working with wholesalers because the wholesalers are going to be doing all the work to find the properties that are fit. And then they they bring it to the investor and it's like, great. <laughs> right? Like I, okay, I need I properties. See. You found me properties. It's worth it's worth it. Um, if it's still if it's still in the budget, the numbers still make sense, right? So that's that's one. Those are just a couple um, strategies that are you know zero to no money down. Another one is find you know you find a property and you have a partner that's going to put in the money, and so you one one person does the work. You know, they find the property, they they work with the contractors to to fix it up to flip it, and the other person puts in the money, and then they sell the the, per, the 
money partner gets their principal back and then the profits are split 50 50. so that's you know that's one strategy okay so those are that's three zero money strategies for investing in real estate um then another block that a lot of women have is that they think that it's going to take a lot of time oh yeah it's going to take a lot of time and they don't have that much time and um and there are ways that you can invest that are very passive. And I share several passive strategies, um, including some online REITs, one of which you can invest in for as little as $100. So, um, yeah, and I share that in the book. There are quite a few very passive, very low time ways of investing. And then the last barrier that I, I think a lot of women are afraid to do is they are terrified of being landlords. They are, they do yes. not want to have a 3 a.m. call about a toilet. <laughs> I don't want to have to evict It's anyone. all, Monique, that's all I know <laughs> about being a landlord and investing in real estate is my grandmother had a house here in the U.S. She lived in Italy. She still had the house and she had my dad be the landlord. That's all I can remember is my dad's frustration and complaining about the terrible tenants and getting the wake up call at 3 a.m. So I think that stuck out yeah. to me. And now forever, that's all I know of with real estate investing. I know everyone's so terrified of that, right? It's like, oh my God, I don't want to have to, you know. And so first of all, you don't have to do the property management. And the only, I have two duplexes in Los Angeles um, near where I live that I, I'm in two, two units here that I, that I do self-manage everything else. I have, I have property managers. So they get the calls in the middle of the night and, and to, and to be honest, and the LA units, I, I think I've gotten a late night call in 15 years once. Oh, um, and most of the time it can, it can be like months and months, if not years before between like call maintenance calls and having to deal with, you know, things for the tenant. So, um, it, it's not, it's not that big a deal, but, but I do have, I have third party property management and I have people that will manage my properties for me. Um, but there are also these other strategies that don't require, you know, like the passive ones that I, I talked about that doesn't require you to be the landlord. There's, um, you can invest in tax liens of on pe people's unpaid property taxes. The municipalities will, um, auction off tax liens and, um, and tax deeds that doesn't require you to deal with the the three keys um that you can invest in notes it's kind of like what the a bank does so you become the bank um you have the the note underlying a mortgage and um that can be very lucrative okay it doesn't so require me, you to deal with that explain with that a little bit more what does that mean what do you do yeah so notes is fascinating um notes are when you're buying if you buy a property right you buy a house then okay. you have um you're getting a mortgage, you're going to sign a note that you're promising to pay under these terms. Right? Okay. That's, that's when you get their mortgage, there's, there's a note underlying that mortgage agreement. So I don't know if you've bought a property and then maybe a little bit afterwards, you get a letter from another entity, another company that says, we now own your mortgage. So now you pay us. That means the note has been sold. That was the bank selling the note which is kind of frustrating for the homeowner. Don't you it's agree? It's annoying, yeah. but it's not that big a deal, right? You're like, oh, it's the same amount of, right? You're just like, oh, yeah. now I have to okay. change where the bank, you know, like 
you have to go through that annoyance, but ultimately it doesn't really change your life much. Um, you still have the same debt. You still have the same um, promise to pay, right? The new entity that bought that note, mm-hmm. um, they're a, a note investor. Now, what most people that are probably like us will do is they will buy non-performing notes. So that's a note from somebody who has not who has stopped paying their mortgage, and they are getting into they've gone into default. And you might wonder why would somebody pay for that, right? Why would you pay for a a, a note for somebody who is not paying on their mortgage, right? That's like they're they're bad debt. It's bad debt. The reason why it's a very interesting and lucrative investment is that when a bank sells the note um, and it's performing, they're they're still going to sell it at a discount. So maybe they would sell that person, that new business that becomes your note holder. Maybe they they paid ninety percent of the note, right, of the value of the of the note. So it, it's a hundred thousand. I'm going to use the round numbers. Hundred thousand dollar property. Um, hundred thousand dollar note. They they bought it for ninety thousand. So that's what performing. Now with a non-performing note, the bank will sell that you know for twenty to fifty cents on the dollar. So instead of a hundred thousand, you're able to buy that for twenty to forty thousand, fifty thousand, and that gives you a lot of room to help the homeowner. So maybe the homeowner. They got sick and they weren't able to pay. And then they're so behind that they, they, they just think, I, I don't know what I can do. You know, I'm so behind. But as with a note with so much equity in the property, you can say, hey, we're willing to forgive what you are behind. Plus, you know, you're paying a thousand a month. Maybe now you can pay, what can you, can you pay? 700 a month? And, um, and they're like, okay, so you're, you're still going to be able to make a lot of money the the note's still worth you know a hundred thousand and then they're able to pay and you're and now and now you're the banker when you look at what, how much you pay on a mortgage because a lot of the interest is front loaded and over the course of a 30-year mortgage most people will pay three times the amount of the note so if you buy a property yeah, for a hundred thousand over the years that's you're paying three hundred thousand for that Gosh, banks even... are not nonprofits. They make yeah, money. Yeah, that's right? true. I, you know, it's interesting. I didn't even know that really existed for us, like regular people, to go into it, that. But it then does. it'll take a yeah. while to get that money back, right? And you hope that they do pay that new price that you agreed on. Yes. Yeah, so there are a lot of different exit strategies with note investing. So um, getting them to reperform is the best. Usually, and then what will happen is once they're perform, once they're reperforming after a year, then you can sell it to somebody who buys performing notes for ninety percent of the note value, right? Oh. So then you've gotten your money back, right? Plus the money they paid over, you know, while they were performing. Um, so that's one thing. But you can sometimes, you know, the worst case scenario is you have to foreclose on the property. But you've gotten it for a percentage of the value of the property. So even if you have to foreclose and you go to foreclosure sale auction and you auction it off, you're you have so much built-in equity, you're not likely to lose money. And then there there are 23 exit strategies using those. There are tons of them um, that you can do. 
and do you like you get... that? Do you do that? The notes? I um I am not a note investor, though I am. You know, I'm working. I have a, a partner. We're working on a a note fund. Like she's an amazing note investor. <laughs> I was like, I love the idea of this. I don't want to do this on a day to day basis. That's not how I like to invest. But I how I invest is I bring groups of investors together to purchase um, larger properties. So people who want to passively invest in real estate, but they maybe they don't have the money to buy all of it themselves. Uh, it's kind of it's basically a, a crowdfund real estate. Ah. So people, people will will put in a certain amount and then we'll, we'll own together an apartment building. So or, you do the legwork. Uh, You're the one that puts in the time, more time than yeah. money. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. So I'm the I'm the active. So they're they're called active investors and passive investors. So in a, in a syndication, and then also the active investors can also be called the sponsors or the general partners. But what we do is we find the property we. You know, we'll just put everything together, bring together the investors, do do all the work, and um, and then the the passive investors, all they have to do is vet the deal to see if it's a fit for them, send in their their money, and wait for their money to come back with friends. With all the women that you've worked with, and you're a mom yourself, so you're you're mm-hmm. busy too yourself. With all the women that you've worked with, what is the the most popular, I guess, way to to just get into the game and start Ooh, that, that works best for for that busy mom who, okay, they'll put in some money. Because I don't know how, I mean, it sounds like a great idea to rent out a space in my house, but I don't think anybody wants to live in this, <laughs> in this house. <laughs> so <laughs> the chaos of the house. So something for like a, a family, a mom, a woman who wants to be in charge with her finances. She wants to add another leg to her table apprehensive has some money but not tons of money to invest where's the first step there are a few things that you want to consider so the first is what are your goals um so for some somebody their your goal might be i i really want passive income right now because i want to be able to retire from my current job right maybe somebody like who i was when i was so miserable in that hospital bed do you see a lot of your clients looking for that a lot of people want that some people want long-term, oh, yeah, that's a long-term answer. growth, right? So, so for people who are using, say, retirement funds, or they have plenty of income right now, they love their job, they're not, they're not trying to quit. They just want to have more for retirement, and they're thinking really long-term gains. Then they're going to be, they're going to be, they're going to have a different goal. Some people might want to, you know, it's really it's all about legacy. Some people are all about tax benefits. They just they want to be able to reduce their their taxable income um, and they don't even care about the, the passive income. Again, they have plenty of money. Yeah. They don't want to pay as much taxes. So you have to figure out what are your what are your goals, because that that goal uh, that will dictates. dictate okay. what what direction you're going you're going to do. A lot of my goddesses are interested in being a passive investor in a syndication. Um, and, and for those of you who, who might be interested in that on my website, we have an investor club that, um, that will, it's free to join and you can access those types of opportunities. And so those are generally, that's their, their passive investments where you'll put in some money, you own a, a piece of a larger property, you get cash flow. 
plus, you know, we'll usually hold these properties, um, you know, an average of you know, anywhere from like three to seven years. And when we sell, you also get a share of the equity. They're also, because you're, you own them, there are tax benefits to owning that. So a lot of, um, a lot of my goddesses are, will passively invest, but then mm. there, there are a lot of other ways of investing too. And it, and it depends on, um, you know, what you're interested in, because a lot of these passive, um, the syndications, a lot of the minimums are, you know, a, a fairly typical minimum is 50,000. So some people, for, there are some people for whom that's, okay, 50,000. I thought it was a lot more and there are other people like 50,000. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And, you know, sometimes it's 25,000. So, you know, so, but it, it's still, it, it's a, you know, it's, it's an amount. Um, but then there are, you know, for people, let's say there are ways of investing, let's say if you have 5,000 or 10,000 and it, and it really, it really depends. But I, I would recommend that for anyone interested, go download that guide, the okay. investing in real estate from $1 to $1 million. So you can see the different strategies because part, you know, partly it'll be what's your goal. And then the other part will be, where am I now with resources? Right. So what do I have available? And resources are not just money, but it's time, relationships, experience. Um, those are all the resources you need in real estate. And then the last is how do I want to play in this game? What do I want to do? What turns me on? So all depending on what the answers are to that question to those questions, you're going to take a different path. All right. And how quick, though, I think the the one thing that a lot of people wonder, at least I'm wondering, how quick can you start to say, oh, yeah, I'm making money? I all all of my investments cash flow from day one. Mm. That's what we look for. So we look for investments that are cash flowing from day one. Oh, I like and that. that. And that's very possible. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. You tell me exactly what I wanted to hear. I like it. Um, with, with a plan to increase the cash flow, but yeah. always starting the cash flow from day one. Yeah, you just have to get get in and get started. Okay. They say real estate is like um, planting a tree. When was the best time? 20 years ago. When's the next best time? Oh. Today. <laughs> oh, right? wow. Okay. Yeah. And so you are there for the your... For your goddesses out there. So if you're interested in this, what is the best way? I know there's so many ways to reach out to you, but what's the best way to learn more and follow you and uh, and be part of the goddesses? The best way is probably to go to reigoddesses.com. And there you'll, you can get connected to everything. Our investor club, you can download the investing in real estate from $1 to $1 million guide. And you can connect to our community but we're I'm also at REI goddesses on this on all the socials all right awesome and your mission is to help 1 million women create financial freedom through real estate investing yes monique thank you so much you've been so generous with your time we appreciate it thanks for having me sandy all right what are you teaching your kids do you pick a job because it makes you happy or because it makes you money we're going to see how the kids answer and our expert has advice for parents Grab a chair. We're about to take a seat at the kids' table next. All right. Welcome to the kids' table. Susan Beecham is here, founder of Money Savvy Generation. How are you, Susan? I am good for January. Oh, yes. Okay. Here we go. So now we ask the kids uh, what they want to be when they grow up. Is it about the money? 
Or is it about the love of the job? What do you want to be when you grow up and why? Um, I want to be an anesthesiologist because it sounds like a pretty easy job, but then it sounds hard, but they do make a lot of money. I'm very interested in that kind of thing. I either want to do that or be a neurologist, and I know that will be a lot of years of school, but I'm very interested in the human body, so I definitely want to do that. Is it more important to find a job that you love or a job that pays you a lot of money? Um, a job that you love because if you do a job that pays you a lot of money, you won't be as happy because you want to do something you love for the rest of your life. But you have a lot of money. Still, you want to do something that you love for the rest of your life. Can money buy you happiness? No. What do you think you want to be when you grow up? I don't know. You're not sure what you want to be? No. I think I want to be like an engineer. An engineer? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cool. What does an engineer do? I don't know yet. You don't know what an engineer does? No. Well, then what makes you want to be an engineer? Because I'm good at engineering stuff. Putting things together? Yeah. Is it better to love your job, or is it better to find a job that pays you a lot of money? Um, it's important to love your job because then you're good at it, and mm. you know what to do. How about if it doesn't pay a lot of money? Do you still do it? Yeah. Huh. Well, do you even need me? I mean, the I know, I know the last the last answer. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> it was perfect. It was just perfect. I think it's very interesting that um, the last answer. Where did he hear the word engineer? I know. Well, yeah, I don't know what it is, but you know, I'm good at engineering things, so I'm assuming his parents are telling him that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which just underscores the importance of our voices in our child's life. So um, let me quit avoiding the elephant in the room and give me give you your answer. Is it love or money? It's both. It's just simply both. And it's always going to be both. Because even though that young boy said engineer, he doesn't truly yet know what his passion is. That takes time and it sometimes changes in life. So what I did when you sent me this question, Sandy, is I put it out there to my world. And I have a world that's comprised of 20-somethings, boomers, and even the greatest generation. And I said, wanting to share the responsibility, so what is it? Is, is it for love or money? What's better? And in the 20-somethings, I got this fantastic answer of it's both. Mm. Um, Elise, who's a brand new mom and in her early thirties said, I think it's easy to say passion, though not everyone can translate their passion into a living. Personally, I work for money so I can pursue my passions. Another 20 something, actually he's probably 29 or 30 right now, He said, it's fine to work so you can really live. He said, there's a social norm that we have that we have to do what we love for work. And I don't think that needs to be the case. And you know, that is a social norm, isn't it? I mean, don't we all say you got to do what you love and the money will follow? Yeah. That 
is a broken promise because doing what you love may not mean a lot of money, but is a lot of money important? It just assumes that money is that important. One of my boomers said, do what you love and align your life so that your life is fulfilling, but you're not spending more money than you make and you don't have to give up what you love. Mm. That's pretty smart. Uh, most of my boomers said, passion, passion, do what you want, but always pursue your passion. But then they also said, interestingly, but I wish I made more money doing ah. my passion. Well, see, okay. So now with all that feedback that you got and your expertise in this, when your kid does say, hey, I want to, and, and I think a lot of parents have dealt with this when their child says, you know, college age or whatever, I want to go be blank. And you know, as the parent that there's not a lot of money in whatever that blank is. At that point, what do you say to your kid? Uh, you teach them about budgeting. Because that's the true freedom that we get from money when we know how to control money versus money controlling us. Mm. Once we understand, I want to be a chef and I'm only going to make X. I want to be a teacher. A lot of the boomers that responded to me said, um, I work for passion, but it certainly hasn't been for money. I've been a teacher for 40 years and I loved every moment, but it certainly wasn't about the money. I know those people and they live in nice homes. They've raised a number of kids. And how did they do it? They did it by managing the money that they were given. They didn't give up on the idea or they felt it was more important to them to do what they loved. So if your child comes to you and says, I want to be mm, an artist and you're thinking you're going to starve instead of telling them, no, 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 say, okay, Let's take a look at the reality. Let's go to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. Let's look at your profession and let's see what the um, income, projected income is for your profession right now. And then sit down and do a simple budget. It can be done. You're not saying don't be that. Yeah. You're saying yeah. you bet, pursue it. You know, there's all these happiness studies that say money doesn't buy happiness. So if that's the case, then you really do have to learn to what? Live within your means. Well, then it, it reinforces as well that it's it's not a matter of how much you earn. It's a matter of what you do with the money you do have. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. Awesome. Susan, how can we follow you and find you and uh, support you? Listeners can follow me at my blog, which is at SusanBeecham.com, and they can find Money Savvy Generations award-winning products and some free resources at moneysavvy.com. Perfect. Have a great weekend, Susan. You too. See, it wasn't that bad, was it? If there's any questions that you have that you want us to uh, tackle in No Dumb Questions, just let me know. If there's a guest you'd like me to get on the show, or if you need help talking to the kids about money, just let me know. This podcast is for you. Before we leave, we have to give a money victory shout out to Mike Gafillion, who said he paid off his wife's car six months early. Fantastic. I love it. We raise a glass and say cheers to you, Mike, and your wife, and every single one of you who is proud to say that you're on your way to being financially confident. Have a great weekend. We will talk to you next week.
Don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Plus, if you don't mind, it would be awesome if you could leave a rating and a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. 